Hello and welcome to the Switch Your Money On podcast. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Head of Money and Markets here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And as usual, I'm with Sarah Coles, the Head of Personal Finance. So, Sarah, we've been talking a fair amount about retirement patterns this week, but I haven't asked you yet what your dream retirement would look like. <laughs> well, until recently, I'd have said I want to keep working until my 80s because I'm really easily bored. But I've been speaking to a number of people in the late 70s this week. And increasingly, I realise I probably won't have a vast amount of say when I stop work because everyone I know in this age group is either too ill to work or is caring for a partner. So it's not a very cheery answer. But how about you? Well, I never did do the backpacking trip around the world. I still quite fancy that. I feel too young to be considering retirement. But given how early I get up every day, I do think my priority will be to have a lie-in once in a while. (laughs) It's the dream, isn't it? But, But yeah, so this is what we're talking about on today's podcast. Retirement, or more accurately, the patterns of early retirement that have developed over the past few years and what it means for people and for businesses struggling for staff. It has had a profound effect on the economy as a whole, so the government is desperate to tempt older people back into work. And we'll be digging into all of that in an episode calling Tiring of Retirement. We'll have Helen Morrissey with us, our Head of Retirement Analysis, who'll be exploring the implications for pensions, both when people finish work early and when they return. Hi Helen, so there is an awful lot for people to consider, isn't there, when they change their retirement plans? Absolutely. And there's some potential pitfalls that people need to be aware of too. And we'll be talking through some of them a bit later on. Thanks, Helen. We'll also be speaking to Sophie Lund-Yates, our lead equity analyst, who'll talk us through what these trends mean for a host of different businesses. Hi, Sophie. You're exploring a number of sectors this time, aren't you? Hi, Sarah. I certainly am. I'll be looking at a number of different companies in different areas of the economy this week. Thanks, Sophie. I look forward to chatting to you a little bit later. But we're also going to be looking at what all of this means for employers and for the workforce itself. So we'll be speaking to a man who really does have his finger on the pulse of the employment market. Lee Gudgeon's here, Managing Director at Reed Talent Solutions. So Lee, we're going to talk a little bit later about what this trend has meant for you. It certainly must have kept you pretty busy. Yeah, we have been really busy, Susanna, um, ever since COVID. So pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, the labour market has shifted pretty much every other month. Well, thanks, Lee. We look forward to catching up much more later in the podcast. And as usual, Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research, will be here. She'll be chatting to Stephen Hay, co-manager of the Bailey Gifford Multi-Asset Income Fund. But first, let's start by looking at just how the world of work has changed over the past few years. Figures from the Office for National Statistics highlighted an exodus of older people from the workforce. Back in July, its statistics showed that since the onset of the pandemic, more than 385,000 people over the age of 50 had moved into economic inactivity. Shorthand for they're not working or looking for work. Now, the data analysts have been exploring the reasons for it, and it appears there are quite a few different things at work. One major factor is ill health. The number of people who are economically inactive because of long-term sickness has been rising since 2019, from around 2 million people to around 2.5 million people. Not all of them are older, but they do make up most of those who are long-term sick for health reasons. Yes, and interestingly, the rise in ill health began before the onset of the pandemic, but it has definitely exacerbated things. So the timing of the growth, plus the range of conditions that people are reporting, means it may not be the pandemic itself that caused the rise, but more the lifestyle changes it brought. So things like working from home, long periods of inactivity, loneliness, isolation, they must all have played a part. 
There's also the issue of people not visiting the GP during the pandemic and struggling to get appointments or care more recently, which could have made chronic conditions worse. But ill health isn't the full picture. So in the government study of why people had stopped work between the ages of 50 and 59, a quarter said they'd retired, almost a fifth because they said they just wanted a change in their lifestyle. There's also likely to be an element of people leaving work in order to care for loved ones. Just over a quarter of people in this age group care for their partner to at least some degree. And around a fifth of women aged 55 to 59 provide unpaid care for someone, as do around one in six men aged 60 to 64. So the ill health in question might actually not be their own. The shrinking labour market is putting pressure on businesses, some of whom just can't seem to recruit the employees they need. While vacancies have dropped back significantly over the past seven months, they're still way above their pre-pandemic levels and there are more than 1.13 million unfilled vacancies in the UK. Even where employers have managed to fill roles, they need to work harder to retain staff. And as a result, more are likely to fill. They need to offer pay rises. Figures for the three months to December show that regular pay, which doesn't include bonuses, was up 6.7% in the year, the strongest growth rate seen outside the pandemic period. Now, the Bank of England's chief economist, Hugh Pill, has warned that this could end up fueling inflation even while energy costs fall. And it's one reason why the government is so keen to get people back to work. It's confirmed that it's exploring a number of potential options. After speculation, it might include tax incentives for over 50s returning to work. But we have as yet not had the detail nor confirmation that anything will come of this exploration. So the good news for the government is there's a decent number of people who would consider going back anyway. So almost three quarters would consider going back to work and almost two thirds would do it for the money. So the December employment figures reflected this with a record flow out of economic inactivity driven by people going to work. So a chunk of this is just the seasonal return of students, but we've also seen the return to work of a number of people who were previously retired. But the picture's far more mixed for those who are too sick to work or caring for someone else. So a return to work may well depend on another area of government support like health or social care, and those just aren't going to be solved in a hurry. So plenty of food for thought there. But what does it all mean for businesses? Well, it does seem like it's a good time to bring in our lead equity analyst, Sophie Lundjates, to talk us through the implications for some of the companies she's got her eye on. So Sophie, we can't really talk about people getting back to work without the world of recruitment. You're certainly right there. And that's why I've been digging into Hayes. So Hayes is a UK listed recruitment giant. It's right at the epicentre of the changing world of work since the pandemic, including helping companies fill skill shortages and navigate the so-called great resignation. The company operates in four geographic regions, which are Australia and New Zealand, Germany, United Kingdom and Ireland and rest of world. Hayes consultants cover 20 professional specialisms, so ranging from things like accountancy and finance to marketing or construction. There's definitely an argument to say they stand to benefit if an unretirement wave rolls in. Its diverse reach means there are roles to suit a wide range of candidates. So looking at Hayes' wider performance, it's actually holding up quite well. I mean, there's always some nerves about the recruitment industry when the economy is worsening, but Hayes' fee income actually rose 8% in its second quarter on a like-for-like basis. That included strong growth across temporary and permanent roles, and it's this balance that I view as a real strength. By some estimates, Hayes looks well-placed in its sector, and I am inclined to agree. That said, a recessionary environment would create tough conditions in the short term. So that's Hayes, Sophie. What about a company that might suit older workers? 
So when looking at it from this angle, I've been looking at Kingfisher. So in terms of names UK listeners will recognise, Kingfisher runs B&Q and Screwfix, but more broadly, it operates approximately 1,530 stores in eight countries across Europe, including Castorama, Brico Depot and Tradepoint. Now, these businesses could well suit an older demographic returning to work as shifts are often flexible and the group's actually very open about its employee diversity drives. Of course, these are all positives, but I am sure our listeners would like to hear about how things are looking in terms of the investment case. So in that sense, things are actually looking pretty good. Um, In the third quarter, which I should point out only goes up to the end of October, the group's sales, ignoring the effective exchange rates, were up 1.7% and significantly higher than pre-pandemic levels. There's strong growth in all the group's regions and online sales have more than doubled since the pandemic. So far as we've heard, trading in the final quarters also seen some good momentum. Kingfisher is being helped by good demand for DIY products, which is something that should stick around. And at the same time, it's particularly encouraging to hear the group has plans to reduce its inventory. So it bulked out its inventory levels to protect product availability because of recent disruption. But this is bad news from a cash flow perspective. So this is an opportunity for growth in that area, really. In terms of the risks for Kingfisher, and I know I wang on about this all the time at the moment but it is margins customers are facing a cost crunch and kingfisher is also needing to invest for growth and in higher energy and labor costs so these factors together mean there's a lot of pressure for sales volumes to stay elevated so we've covered recruitment and an employer so what's the final piece of the puzzle That would be learning or training. So that's why I've been looking at Pearson, which by its own definition is the world's leading learning company. This includes materials and physical testing across higher education. Then there's workforce skills, English language learning and virtual learning and the group's biggest division, which is assessment and qualifications. This segment offers tools to allow people to upskill or reskill across professional and educational qualifications. And this clearly lends itself to people that want to return to the workforce but need to hone some different skills, like people of retirement age. There are a couple of things that make the business model attractive, and that includes the fact the group has long-term contracts, which helps revenue visibility. So Pearson definitely has a lot of the right ideas and is a natural beneficiary of the increasing trends for things like upskilling. The fly in the ointment is its higher education business where revenues are continuing to decline. So these revenues are still really anchored to to physical teaching and testing. So demand for physical textbooks has actually been on the decline for years and that has made Pearson's pivot to digital pretty protracted and painful. Momentum has been impressive in terms of the digital turnaround and full year underlying profits of £455 million as at the group level were better than expected. Now, essentially, there's a lot to like about Pearson's longer term plans, but that's largely been reflected in the current valuation, which has climbed 44% in the last 12 months. Well, thanks, Sophie. It does look like there's some companies there who could see some real opportunities in a tight labour market that's looking to attract older people back to work. But let's look more in depth now at one company in this area and speak to Lee Gudgeon, who's Managing Director at Reed Talent Solutions. So, Lee, can you give us an idea of the recruitment picture at the moment? Yes, I can. Yes. So we are now in February, February 2023, and I would say it shifted again. If we're thinking post-pandemic, there was a jobs boom. Um, It did get a little bit quieter late last year, but uh, since then it has picked up again. The the market is is now um, hot, not very hot like it was uh, a year ago, but it is now hot again. And when you say it's hot, Lee, what do you mean by that? Is there just a real demand for workers and are 
companies really thinking about the wider picture and going for a different demographic? So what I mean by hot is there is more jobs than there are people. I think that's probably the challenge that uh, employers are faced with. In particular, skill set wise, tech, engineering, healthcare, scientific, those markets there are very competitive for candidates. That's where employers have got to look a little bit deeper about how they upskill, reskill and attract because they are very hard to recruit skilled workers in those sectors. And are they having to sort of up their offers and, and look not just at things like salary, but also things like maybe more flexible or hybrid working? Yeah, I think I think you could say if there was a war for talent, talent has won at this point, which means employers are having to work a whole lot harder to recruit. So up their offers can work to a degree, but ultimately there's a limit on that. You can't do that forever. And then you've got your, your existing workforce to think about. So you, so you want uh, fairness and uh, fairness and the equity that fits in your business. So as opposed to just upping offers, it's more about what is the overall package for the workforce ranging from flexible working to increase pensions to hybrid working and then just the feel-good factor and training uh, in internal mobility that you you might be able to cater for um, uh, potential employees and then finally you've got the ESG agenda which is much bigger now so if you've got a really strong ESG inclusive strategy you're going to open yourselves up to more talent. Is that a particular section of the workforce that is much more attuned to ESG, so environmental, social and governance issues at companies? I think it'd be fair to say that there is a perception um, that the millennials and in whatever Gen Z is, there is a perception that that population take more seriously the ESG agenda within the um, within the potential employers. But that it's almost like it's the, the final tick in the box for them. So they still want the salaries, they still want the hybrid working, they still want training, they still want career progression. So if you've got an offer on the table from two companies, that's exactly the same, but one company's got a really strong ESG agenda, that will probably what ticks the box to get you into that that place of work. So if we can ask you just a little bit particularly about older people in the workforce. So are there employers out there who are particularly targeting that age group and, and sort of building their proposition towards them? The short answer is yes. I would say it's relatively recent. I think the predictions are by 2024, 50% of the working population will be uh, above 50. And we expect that to rise in the coming years. So it is obviously a huge, a huge talent pool if, if that's 50% of the, the working age group. Typically, the evidence shows that the 55 plus population has home needs, be that caring for, for elderly, be that uh, health challenge. So they're looking for a bit more flexibility in, in how, they, how they approach work. But of course, they have a huge amount of life experience, emotional intelligence uh, and capabilities that uh, employers can tap into. With the digital uh, working age now, what we're in the fifth, fifth industrial revolution, companies are now far more able to have flexible working and be able to offer packages that this population can be attracted to and can actually weave into their their lifestyle. And in terms then of those workers themselves, have you seen any evidence of sort of people leaving the workforce and then looking to come back and start again? Or is it something that you're hearing people talk about more than you're actually seeing in reality? I've seen my mum do it. I don't know if that counts. but It uh, certainly does count. Okay, okay. (laughs) so she left the workforce pre-COVID and she is re-entered the workforce in, in a flexible manner. So I've seen it within the family. As an employer myself, we have um, a really good age range uh, of population and we've got individuals that um, have joined us because 
yeah, actually lost a loved one and therefore at home full times uh, on their own, almost looking for that social stimulation. We've got co-members who have retrained themselves uh, looking to want to work in an office out of operational environments that perhaps became a bit more restrictive uh, around time you need to be there or the physicality of the job. So I've seen it at home and I've seen us employ um, this population. And then with our client base, where we do an awful lot of recruitment for we obviously uh, pitch specific campaigns for them, and some of that is early talent. And now we've got uh, an inclusive solution where we're looking at um, reskilling. So we, we recruit uh, an inclusive workforce, we retrain them and, and deploy them into the workplace because ultimately the skills gap is such that employers have got to look for uh, talent in a variety of ways. So we are now seeing it with a wide range of employers. I've got to ask, Lee, did, did you find your mama position? No, I did not find my mama position. <laughs> no, she was quite capable of doing it herself. Would you say, though, that some employers are more hesitant about employing older workers or do you think that's changing? I think that's changed already. I don't think that exists, no. I think there's something about employers catering for them, but there is also something about the the age workforce accepting that their employers have customers and they have other uh, colleagues that they need to sort of fit in with as well you know it, it, most things if you, if if you reach the middle they they work so no i don't think we see discrimination i think one challenge we have seen is a cultural balance so if you've got a um a, a team with a very wide um age range and let's say that's 20 to 70 or 20 to 75 even what is the dynamics in that team and how does a a 25 year old cope with managing a 70 year old um, so there are some upskilling needed, not just to retrain the, the, the old generation to get into workforce, but there's actually training within your your own employees in how to in how to handle that and how to manage. Because, uh, you know, there, there is there is experiences within the, the, the elder population that, that you need to be able to manage. One of the things that we are hearing a fair amount about from government is this idea of trying to persuade people to go back to work. And do you think realistically there is any way of persuading retired people that work is the future if that's not necessarily on their radar? It's an interesting one, isn't it? If, if you're the government right now and, and you've got to be thinking, how do we manage with this pension pot? If, if, if you're born today, aren't you supposed to live to 104 years old? So we're going to have a long, long time retired. So I think the government's going to want to get people into the workforce but, um, because otherwise it's a, it's a long state pension. They're paying out for a high number of people. And I'm sure we will see the retirement age continue to rise if, if only to fund the state pension. So the government will be motivated. How do employers, how does the government convince this population to get into work. Uh, I think there's something there on employers really making sure that it's attractive enough. What comes out time and time again is they just want a bit of flexibility. If, if you're caring for someone, be that your parent or your, or, your, or your loved one, you do need a bit of flexibility. So I think that is probably the number one topic I would point to, to convincing them to come into work. At the same time, employers do have business needs, so you, you need to meet them. But uh, I mean, if I was tired and I could afford it, would, would you need to convince me to come to work? That's a tough call, isn't it? If you can afford it, why would you want to go to work? Although, have you noticed the difference, Lee, in your mum since she's returned to work? She's definitely more stimulated. I think probably with, with people that are, um, uh, are married, if, if you're not retiring at the same time, I think that's quite tricky, isn't it? So that could be a scenario there where once her and my stepdad both retire, will she work then? That'll be interesting. I suspect she will. She's a very busy individual. She's very fit, very healthy. So I can imagine that she would want to. 
Yeah, it's it's a funny one to think about whether it's better to both retire or actually just have a little bit more time to yourself on your own. <laughs> yeah, best of both worlds you probably want, don't you? Thanks so much, Lee, for joining us on the podcast. It will be really interesting to see how all of these trends develop and to find out how your mum's getting on. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Now I'd like to bring in our Head of Retirement Analysis, Helen Morrissey, to explore the implications for pensions from people leaving and returning. So, Helen, we've heard that the labour market is really tight and we need more workers. Why would someone who chose to retire want to come back? Well, the cost of living crisis has certainly played its part. People retired thinking that they had enough to live on, but then rising costs have bitten into their budgets and many people are now realising that their money doesn't stretch quite as far as they thought. So recent data from the Pension and Lifetime Savings Association showed the cost of a moderate retirement has risen by an eye-watering 2500 per year over the course of the crisis, which means that there's many people out there who simply don't have enough to get by. Well, that sounds pretty straightforward, but there are challenges, aren't there? Yes, there really are. So one key area is retraining and government research has shown that over two thirds of older workers who needed to return to work reported that they didn't feel like they had the necessary job skills to help them find a different role. So there's clearly a real gap here that needs to be filled in terms of helping older workers to reskill and give them the confidence that they need to get back out into the workforce. Uh, The other key thing is, is lifestyle. So as mentioned earlier, many older people have caring responsibilities and this means a nine to five job five days a week is unlikely to suit them and this was shown again in recent data which highlights the most important factors for older workers when choosing a paid job with flexible working hours as well as good pay and the ability to work from home so if employers are going to tempt older workers back they're going to need to be really flexible and open to change. And I suppose, Helen, many older workers will be grateful for the help in rebuilding their pensions as they'll benefit from an employer contribution as well as their own. Well, yes, they will, but there are complications that people do need to be aware of. So there's rules around how much you can contribute to a pension every year. And if you breach them, you do get hit with a tax charge. So most people can contribute up to £40,000 per year to their pension and still receive tax relief on their contributions. However, if you have flexibly accessed your money purchase pension, this allowance is slashed to just £4,000 per year. This is what is known as the money purchase annual allowance. Lots of people who retired during the pandemic will have accessed their pension to top up their income and they may not realise that they will be hit by this lower allowance once they restart their contributions again. Of course, it's always worth remembering that tax rules can change and benefits do depend on personal circumstances. Yes, I mean, that can make a huge difference to how much people can pay in and if they don't realise it, they could be hit with a pretty nasty tax bill. Isn't that right? Um, Yes, they can. So the first many people will know about it is when their provider tells them that they've breached the annual allowance and that they need to repay the excess tax relief through self-assessment. So if government really wants to support older people back into the workforce, then we believe that they need to take a closer look at how they can reform the money purchase annual allowance and help those people who are trying to do the right thing to rebuild their retirement resilience. One thing that's always struck me is how do people know when they've saved enough for retirement? Because so many things can happen, can't it? 
It's a really great point, Sarah, and that is why the figures from the PLSA that I mentioned earlier are so important. So they've taken three retirement lifestyles, minimum, moderate and comfortable, and they've put an annual figure against each of them. So for instance, a minimum retirement lifestyle would only give you the basics and the PLSA estimated that that will cost just over £12,000 per year for a single person. Now you can factor the state pension into this and that's going to be worth over 10600 from April. So this accounts for the vast majority of it. However, if you want to retirement with a few more frills, say running a car or going abroad on holiday, then you're probably looking at more like just over £23,000 per year, while a comfortable retirement with more money to spend on fun things like theatre trips and meals out could set you back just over £37,000 per year. Well, there are some big numbers to aim for. And of course, during the autumn, many people nearing retirement who may have been moving into bonds could have had a pretty nasty surprise. Yes, so people nearing retirement who have a defined contribution pension will sometimes have their money in pension investments that do what is known as lifestyling. Now, this means that they gradually move over to assets that are typically seen as less volatile, and this includes bonds. So as a result, when the bond prices collapse, as they did last autumn, they may have seen their pension pot fall, and this is the last thing you want so close to retirement. So if they can delay retirement by working longer, then this gives their income time to recover. However, those people looking to annuitise actually found that lower bond prices cause annuity incomes to surge. And so they will have got higher incomes as a result. The timing has been all important. Thanks, Helen. So there's some swings and roundabouts there for uh, people with their money in bonds. Makes a change from roller coasters that we're usually talking about, doesn't it, Sarah? Oh, very good. Very good. So so we explored the role of bonds and pensions a bit there. So let's bring in Emma Wall now, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research, who's been talking to Stephen Hay, co-manager of the Bailey Gifford Multi-Asset Income Fund. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Emma. So we're talking today about people having to work for longer, needing income in retirement for longer. And I thought we could talk about other ways of generating income in retirement, and that's through investing, specifically through the concept of natural yield, which sounds a bit jargony, but I'm hoping that you can explain it to our listeners. Well, that's absolutely right, Emma. I think what's really important as we all live longer and hope to enjoy our retirements is that we do make our, our investments work harder and for longer. And that means having a you know a collection of different assets held for a much longer period than maybe people have in the past. And what you can get from those assets is, as you say, a natural yield. And really, that's the income that comes directly from those assets. So in the case of an equity, it would be the dividend that a company pays. In the case of a bond, it would be the coupon payment that it pays. That's the natural income that is generated from those assets. And it saves you having to actually sell down some of your portfolio to generate income because that income is coming naturally. I thought it was interesting what you said about asset class mix and holding certain assets for longer because typically people think about retirement as a time to de-risk, sell equities, buy bonds. Obviously, everybody's individual circumstance is different. But typically, we are living for longer now. So actually having riskier assets for longer makes sense, doesn't it? I think it's absolutely essential 
to be honest, that we all start to think much harder about how we make our assets work as we hit that point of looking towards retirement. People have typically in the past had annuities. Now, clearly, interest rates have risen a bit, so they're maybe a little bit more attractive than they were, but they're still very low in terms of the, the yield on an annuity. So that's a very costly way to generate income from retirement. So I think we have to think much more flexibly about how we hold our assets through that retirement period and keep them working for longer so that we can keep our income growing over that period. And importantly, to keep pace with inflation, which is a key risk if you don't invest in assets that can keep pace with inflation. You said the dreaded I word, I was going to bring it up, but you've nicely brought it up for me so we can segue. Those are the theories, that's the building blocks of how to generate income in retirement. But let's think about right now, because you run a multi-asset fund, which does have equities and bonds and some alternatives in it. How are you investing to generate income at the moment with inflation as high as it is? So inflation is a really key thing to think about, Emma. It's going to really devalue your investment and your income over time. To give you an example, if, if we invested everything in fixed income right now, the yield of income that we get is going to be fixed in nominal terms. So it won't rise with inflation. So over the years, if inflation is high, that will erode the value of your income. So for us, it's really important to have a, a mix of assets in the portfolio and, and not just to have fixed income because we want to guard against that inflation risk. So for us in our multi-asset income fund, which we're actually going to rename shortly the Sustainable Income Fund, we have about a third in equities a third in fixed income and about a third in what we call real assets, which would be property and infrastructure. And the point of having that mix, that third, a third, a third, is really so that we can keep our income growing at least in line with inflation and our capital growing in line with inflation. So yes, we have the fixed income in there to provide a, a higher level of income right now, but we know that will erode over time. So for us, it's really important that we have the equities in there. And this is, the guess, the point about keeping your assets working for longer through the retirement period, keeping equities in your portfolio. And, and they are income generating equities, but they can provide the growth of income in the portfolio. We need diversification as well to help with the resilience of the income. So we have some property and infrastructure. And these are also income producing assets, but they tend to be able to keep pace with inflation. Often the underlying cash flows are directly or indirectly linked to inflation. So they should help to keep pace with inflation. So if you can blend all these assets together, then you have a portfolio that can keep growing in line with inflation and provide a nice high income as well. Diversification is so important, as you say, whether you are doing asset allocation yourself and building a portfolio yourself, or whether you are outsourcing that to a multi-asset fund manager such as yourself, diversification really does build that resilience through a market cycle. So at the moment, we're facing volatility, economic uncertainty, higher inflation. But if all those metrics were reversed, diversification would still be important because there'd be different things driving the market, wouldn't there? Absolutely. So we'd like to look ahead as, in, as investors. We like to think we can uh, anticipate what events are going to happen. But you know, we all know that actually it's, it's a lot of the things that happen are unforecastable. The Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impact on gas prices, we just didn't expect that. So it is really important to have a range of assets that can do different things in different circumstances. And we know from the historical experience that the income you get from equities can be quite volatile at times. So we have to be aware of that. We know that during the, the COVID 
period, if you held UK equities, for example, there was a fall in, in the income from those of about 45%. So it was a big fall in income. And I know that from talking to a lot of people that I know that are retired, that that was a big impact on their income through that COVID period. So you want diversification. So if, for example, you'd held global equities, and our focus is really on global rather than just UK, the global equities were only down about 12%. Um, over that period, so a, a lot less, so a lot of diversification. And actually, if you held infrastructure, our infrastructure income grew during the COVID period. So I think it is really important because we just don't know exactly what's going to happen to have that diversification in the portfolio. Now, I know you've just said that you don't know what's going to happen and you don't have a crystal ball, but I also know that as a team and, and as a group, Bailey Gifford does think about kind of the likelihood of certain economic events and factors, and that provides context to the investment decisions that you're making. So what are your expectations for the remainder of 2023 and beyond when it comes to the sort of big uncertainty that we have around inflation and economic growth and, and market outlook? As you say, we do spend a lot of time thinking about the different scenarios that could impact, and it's really important on the on the fixed income side in, in particular. Often on on the equity side, when we're looking to pick companies, we are looking with a much longer time horizon, so look, looking at five or ten years, and therefore the the shorter term influences on the market are less important and we're thinking really about a company's competitive advantage, the growth in that particular market, etc. Those are the most important things. But when we are thinking about asset allocation, we will be thinking about valuations in the market and what can do well from here. Clearly, the inflation outlook is vital. Our view had been that the inflation was underpriced by the market. And we've got now gone to a place where people you know, are worried about inflation. I think it's, it's fairly priced. I think inflation will come back down again quite strongly throughout this year and into next year. I think a lot of that is kind of baked in, in terms of we've seen the gas prices come down already. That will feed through to the inflation number. So we will see quite a fall in inflation in the near term and maybe throughout the rest of this year. But the big question really is beyond that, where is inflation going to settle in the medium term? And that's an area we still have some concern concerns about. We think the labour market, which is a key thing in in driving inflation, is still really tight and really strong. There aren't enough workers. It's been well publicised. Everyone over 55 seems to have retired. There's just not enough people out there in the labour force working. That helps to keep keep wages strong and it's, it's hard for inflation to fall back significantly. So I think the days of inflation being too low for the Bank of England, you know, below the inflation targets, I think those days are gone. And I think we are in a, an inflation being a little bit higher than it used to be. Maybe maybe not too high, maybe just in the 3 to 4%, not, not as high as people have seen recently. But it's still a very relevant point for thinking about your asset class mix. Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Emma Wall there talking to Stephen Hay, co-manager of the Bailey Gifford Multi-Asset Income Fund. And please bear in mind these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And now it's time for the stat of the week. And this week, the government published some of its research into homeworking and hybrid working. So before the pandemic, around one in eight people worked from home. Now, this rose to a peak in the first half of 2022 of 49%. But where do you think it's settled since? Now, Sarah, this is a figure that includes anyone who worked from home for at least part of the time in the previous seven days. And I'll accept anywhere in a broad range. I hope that's a very broad range because I have no idea. But, you know, always happy to give it a guess. I'm going to go for 30%. Well, you're in the range, but that's not that hard because it's actually fluctuated between 25% and 40%. 
and the statisticians haven't been able to establish yet a pattern explaining why. It seems like sometimes we want to go to the office and sometimes we've just had enough of other people. <laughs> and on that note, it's all from us for this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 20th of February 2023 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments can rise and fall in value, so you could get back less than you invest, and past performance isn't a guide to the future. This is not a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment, and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers, to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Lee, Sophie, Helen, Stephen, Emma, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.